Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. This is No Excuses with John Taffer. I'm John Taffer, best-selling author, bar rescue guru, and soon your new best friend. I've got a lot of shit for us to talk about, so stop making excuses and let's get started, because this gets real right now. All the way from the studios at Podcast One, here's John Taffer. Alrighty, if you got any excuses, this is the time to get rid of them, because this is episode 59. I'm John Taffer, and this is my No Excuses Podcast. How's everybody doing? I hope you're not cooking out there. Was, I think it was 113 here today, Corey. Unbelievable. Yeah, it's hot. You know, when you live in Las Vegas and, and, and it's 114, 115 degrees out, imagine how hot it is in your car. I mean, Corey, I drive in my car for an hour. It's still hot. Yeah. You know, the steering wheel is still hot, and, and, and it's the exact opposite of what I used to go through years ago. A lot of people don't know this about me. Years ago, I used to be the Hooters franchisee in North Dakota. You didn't know that, did you, Corey? I didn't. And I had three Hooter stores up there, and I built wow. them and, and had two in Fargo and one in Bismarck, North Dakota. And I used to go up there in the middle of wintertime, and it was like 40 below zero. And I used to leave my car keys and a $10 bill in an envelope with this bellman's name on it downstairs in a hotel, downstairs in a hotel, Corey. So he would start my car at 7.30 in the morning, and then I'd come down at like 9. Oh, smart. <laughs> after the car ran for an hour and yeah. a half. Man, was it freaking cold there. But I'll tell you what. I'll take the 115 over the 40 below anytime. Yeah, I think I'm right there with you on that. So I'm pretty excited about uh, uh, TVT uh, and what's going on with TVT. A couple years ago, I created Taffer Virtual Teaching, which is this online teaching service, and I really got into it. I spent a fortune and built a whole studio. Matter of fact, this studio exists, Corey, because of Taffer Virtual Teaching. And my whole purpose was to create the greatest video-based, internet-based training program in the world. And I worked, and it didn't work. And then I tried another creative approach, and it didn't work. After three or four times, I came up with this formula of these humorous animations with knowledge and created 30 hours of content called TVT University. And it's online. It's at TVT, uh, TafferVirtualTeaching.com. And I'm pretty excited about this. I just formed a partnership with Grant Cardone. And I'm guessing a lot of you know who Grant Cardone is. If you don't, Grant is probably one of the greatest motivational speakers and sales consultants in the world. And if you haven't checked out Grant's website, grantcardone.com, you should. But on Grant's website at grantcardone.com slash Taffer is now all my Taffer virtual teaching content. I'm pretty excited about it. So uh, uh, about 30 hours of, of promotions, marketing, opening a business, running a business, I'm pretty excited about it. And if you go to the site, Corey, you can watch like 20 or 30 minutes of it for free. So it's pretty cool. Everybody should do it. Also, just while I'm on a promotional kick right now, at grandcardone.com slash Taffer, you can get my promotions book for $7. Can you believe it? Corey, we sold this book for $179 for years. Oh, wow. It's my 60-page book. It's got 50 promotions in it and all about promotion, marketing, frequency marketing, and that kind of stuff. And that's all available at grandcardone.com. So I'm pretty excited about that. So I was on Fox last week, and I was talking about fake meat. Right, Corey? All these fake burgers and everything that's going on. Right. So, so, you know, one of them is the Impossible Burger. And everybody's talking about oh, the Impossible Burger. It's unbelievable. It's, it's no meats at all. It's all vegetable-based and blah, blah, blah. So 
I went on Fox Business last, last week, Stuart Varney, and one of the things they asked me to, to research and talk about were these fake patties. Now, as one who is on the board of Cleveland Clinic and is very involved in neurological sciences and stuff, I'm pretty knowledgeable. And there's a problem because the world's population is growing to the point that at some point, Corey, we're not going to have enough real protein to feed everyone. Right, right. We can't have enough cows and chickens and, and, and all of this to feed the billions and billions of people that are yet to come. So these artificial proteins are really important, right? Because it's a way that we can make proteins in factories and feed a whole bunch of people. So I'm thinking to myself, are these things healthier? Are they better? So I went and I did my homework. And Taffer Investigative Reporting determined the following. The fake patties are the same in saturated fat and sodium. There's no difference. So if you eat the fake patty or you eat the real patty, you're consuming the same amount of sodium and the same amount of saturated fat. There's no freaking difference. Wow, that's interesting. Now, people can say you're not eating animal uh, uh, um, uh, cells, and, and, and you know they can pick it apart to that level. But for the average consumer who's focused on sodium and saturated fats, there's no freaking difference. So from my view, buddy, I'm going for the burger. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Tastes better. Tastes better. So, so uh, there it is on fake meat. Other interesting trend going on is Americans are ditching American beer. And it's really, it's, it's starting to become a pretty big crisis. Almost every beer brand in America is forecasting negative sales growth this year. Corey, just about every single one. And some of them are forecasting 5, 6, 8, 10% sales decline this year. And it's all, some of it are people switching away from beer to spirits. But a lot of it is people moving to craft beer and moving to farm beers. So there's a real uh, uh, disruption going on now in the beer business. And brands, core brands like Coors, Bud, Bud Light, uh, uh, these are brands that are really, really uh, 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 experiencing some stress. And the other issue is, and this is a bit of inside information, is distributors distribute all this beer. And when they distribute Bud Light and 40 craft beers at the same time, they just tend to be more excited about selling and promoting the craft beer than the American beer. As a result... Corey, American beers are really, really in trouble. And I believe, and don't quote me on this, but I believe the only two beer brands in America that are showing growth are both Mexican. So there we go. That's interesting. So 40% more millennials are consuming wine throughout the year than adults above millennial age. Interesting. And millennials are starting to get into wine, which I guess is a good thing because that's a great American product. How about this? Joey Chestnut. You know who Joey Chestnut is, Corey? Oh, yeah. Famous eater. Famous eater. So Joey Chestnut's the, the, the skinny little guy who won, always wins the Nathan's hot dog eating contest. And I believe he won last year, if I'm not mistaken, consuming 52 freaking hot dogs. Jeez. Think about that. He's a little guy. Yeah. And when you look at him, you say, you know, where the hell did these things go? Right? Because he's, he's not sitting on a toilet while he's eating, so they got to be in his body somewhere. Well... <laughs> Joey Chestnut is at it again, and now he competed in the Hooters wing competition. So he's the 12-time Nathan's Hot Dog Champ. Corey, I don't know if you saw this or not, but how many wings do you think Chestnut ate? Oh, I'm going to go with 50. 50. 50. Oh, okay. Now, he had 12 hours to eat them. Does that change your number at all? How long? He had 12 hours to eat as many wings as he could. Oh, okay. Um, I'm going to say probably 50 an hour. 
I was, that, yeah. I, okay, so 50 an hour, 12 hours. So you're saying he could eat 600 wings yeah. in 1,200? Wow. Well, he only ate 413. Oh, you should okay. compete next year then, Corey. Let's see <laughs> if you could do 50 an hour. Yeah, no. 413 freaking wings this guy ate at 12 hours in the Mall of Georgia. And uh, uh, <laughs> he actually uh, celebrated National Chicken Wing Day. He started 11 a.m. and downed 250 by 5.50 p.m. Jeez. And then he just continued for several more hours. Yeah. 413 wings. That's really just incredible. And, and you think to yourself, why would somebody do that? I mean, would you try to do that? No, I mean, I, I know I wouldn't. Would you do, do it for thousand dollars? Oh yeah, I'd give it a shot. All right, so a thousand bucks, you sell your soul, you'll eat yourself to death. Oh yeah. Would you do it for five hundred? Uh, I don't know about yeah, I don't know about that. Okay, so your point of of selling your soul is a thousand. Yeah, bucks. it's got to be a thousand or more. <laughs> that's that's my limit. All right, so I I know that now. So, how about this poor guy goes to the hospital? I won't say his name. Poor guy goes to the hospital to get circumcised. And, uh, well, it's, 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 they mistaken him for another patient and cut the guy's dick. Oh. Can you imagine oh. that? So what do you think they gave him <laughs> for an improperly, inappropriately, and incorrect circumcision of one's penis? What do you think this guy got in dollars for compensation? Oh, I don't know, but I hope over a million dollars for that. Now, now when you think about it, Twenty-four thousand three hundred freaking dollars is what the guy got. Oh, I'd be pissed, man! I just couldn't imagine that. Twenty-three dollars—that's what your dick is worth, Corey. <laughs> Twenty-three grand—that's it. I'd like to think it was worth more than that. Yeah, you? I'd hope so. Wow! How about these sharks biting three people in Florida? Oh yeah, it was just Shark Week too. It, I wonder if they knew that. Maybe they're pissed about Shark Week. Yeah. Maybe that's what's going on. And then there's this big protest in Hawaii. There's a mountain. They don't want them to put another observatory on the mountain. But there's already 12 there. I mean, it doesn't seem like such a big deal to me. All right. Are you ready for our days of the week? I'm ready. Let's do it. Okay. We got some good days this month. I'm pretty excited about it. So today, right now, as we're sitting here, is National Underwear Day. Okay. I got underwear on. Okay. Briefs or boxers? What's going on here? I'm a brief guy. You're a brief guy. I'm a brief guy, too. Maybe yeah. we shouldn't be even talking about this. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of weird. National Work Like a Dog Day. That sort of applies for us. National Oyster Day. Ooh, tomorrow's National Root Beer Float Day. That's a pretty cold day. Tomorrow is National Fresh Breath Day. All right, I got a story for you. I'm shooting Bar Rescue last week. And I'm in Salt Lake City. We're shooting Bar Rescue. I'm not going to say the name of the episode because I don't want to uh, insult anyone. And Phil Wills is my expert last week, who's, who's my buddy. We've been doing Bar Rescue together like six, seven years. And there's a gentleman in the cast whose breath, Corey, was so overwhelming that you couldn't stand within five or six feet of this guy. Oh, man. So every time I'm talking to him, I got to back off. It was unbearable. <laughs> About another hour later, Phil comes up to me. I'm in a trailer in the back. He says, man, did you smell that guy's breath? So the entire crew is talking about this guy's breath. Nobody can stand next to him. Nobody can talk to him. So we had to pull him aside and have a little talk to talk with him. And then we got him to consume some mints, which made the whole production much more enjoyable for us all. Years ago, I had a bartender who worked for me in Chicago. And this guy, Corey, just like never took a shower. The guy smelled. But yet he didn't look dirty and he had huge sales. So I used to carry this plastic bottle of 
brute in my pocket, which was a cheap <laughs> cologne back then. Right. And when a guy turned around and walked the other way, I'd douse his back. I'd like do the sweep <laughs> with my arm, and I'd be hitting him with brute all night long so that people didn't smell what he actually smelled like. But this was this unbelievably bad breath. We should have been bad breath rescue, not bar rescue. National Wiggle Your Toes Day. So Wednesday is Purple Heart Day. That's a great day. Thank everybody for all the sacrifices they made. National Lighthouse Day. National Raspberries and Cream Day. How about this? This is a new one. I'm I'm guessing this is new this year because Thursday, August 8th is National CBD Day. Oh, okay. That must be pretty new. I'm guessing because nobody was talking about CBDs last year. National Happiness Happens Day. National Mm -hmm. Frozen Custard Day. How about this one? National Sneak Some Zucchini Into Your Neighbor's Porch Day. That's real. (laughs) National Sneak Some Zucchini Into Your Neighbor's Porch Day. Think about that. This is in a file somewhere in Washington, D.C., probably our national archives as a congressional act. National Dollar Day, National Rice Pudding Day, National Veep Day, National Sons and Daughters Day. So we're sons, but we don't get our own day. Nope. Mothers get their own days. Fathers get their own days. There's doggy da- uh, uh, daddy dog, uh, daughter days in school and stuff. But as sons, we got to share it with our sisters. Seems very unfair. National Presidential Joke Day. Boy, is that well-timed, huh? National Raspberry Bomb Day and National Spirit of 45 Day, whatever the hell that is. Those are our days of the week, Corey. Pretty impressive. Pretty impressive. So this is our our, our government at its best. All right, Corey, I don't know if the next segment is my favorite part of this show or my scariest part of this show. But In the Dark is a segment that's just a couple weeks old where we ask you guys to send in audio files with any question you want. You can print it or you can send in an audio file. Corey will not tell me the questions, right? I will not. Hopefully they're aggressive and bold and edgy and even embarrassing and challenging. So Corey's going to pick the ones that he thinks will embarrass me or challenge me the most. He's going to play them to me on the air, correct? Correct. I'm going to hear them for the first time that you do, correct? Yep. I'm just creating verification here, Corey, oh, yeah. so everybody knows we're being honest. <laughs> and that is what we call the In the Dark segment. So I have no freaking idea what's coming at all, but I'll deal with it when we come back. Don't shut down this podcast yet. No Excuses with John Taffer continues next. Want to talk to John? Email him now at podcast at johntaffer.com. Boy, Corey, to get your TV today, how many subscriptions do you have to have? Oh, man, way too many. It's ridiculous between the Hulos and the Netflix and cable and then satellite delivery services and HBO. By the time you're done, you have 20, 30 subscriptions and you're paying everybody just to watch TV. Pluto TV is the leading free streaming television service. I want to say it again. Free streaming television service. You can watch over 100 TV channels and thousands of movies on demand, all completely free. No credit card needed, no sign-up. Pluto TV is the easy and completely legal way to watch your favorite TV shows and hit movies. What are you waiting for? Never pay for TV again. Download Pluto TV for free on all your favorite devices today. Shut it down! All righty, I'm sweating bullets here. My palms are sweating. The sweat on my brow because it's time for In the Dark. The time in this podcast where I have no idea what's coming. And Corey, do you have any audio clips for me this week? We do. We have three fresh ones. Oh, boy. You, haven't, you have heard them. Uh, I, have, I briefly listened to them, yeah. 
Okay, so is this going to be easy or is this going to be hard? Give me some kind of indication of where we're going. Yeah, we're going to be right there in the middle. Right there in the middle. Okay, so this isn't too bad, maybe. No, it's not too bad. Okay, let's see what you got. Hi, John. What is your advice for a college student who would also like to be a bar consultant but doesn't quite know where to start and what degree would be best? Thanks. Oh, that's a pretty easy one. You know, guys, I was in college. I went to University of Denver, and I was in college taking political science and cultural, cultural anthropology courses. And I got a job tending bar in college. And one thing led to another, and I, I, I learned the business, and I fell in love with it. So one can't become a bar consultant. One first must become a bar man or a bar person. So you've got to get into business. And the perfect way to do it is start as a bartender. So start as a bartender. You can do it in a college bar where you're mostly pouring beers and stuff in the beginning. Then evolve yourself because you have to learn how to tend bar, how to control product, what the products are, how to use the products, what spoils, what doesn't, what's held in refrigerators, what isn't. There's a million things to learn at that level of being a bartender or being a cook. And I started as a bartender. That's why I think I'm good at this business because I learned it from the bottom up. I didn't just step in at the top. So that's my suggestion to you. Don't become a bar consultant. Become a bar person first, then become a bar consultant. That was an easy one, buddy. Give me one more. All right. This one's actually pretty challenging here. All right. Let's see. Hey, John. My name is Mauricio. I was just wondering if you were able to help me out. I'm looking to buy my second property. Uh, how do I get financing if I already had debt to income from my first mortgage? Uh, if I rent it out, I won't have any debt, but will the lender see it this way? Thanks, man. Great question. So, so you have a business now, uh, you want to, and and your income to debt ratio is out of whack. Is what I'm suggest, what I'm thinking from what you said. So it's it's difficult for you to get a loan to open your next business. But yet, if you leased out the first one, you would would the bank recognize that as positive cash flow, or would they recognize the rent income as a reduction to your existing debt level? The answer is it depends upon the lease. If you sign a lease with somebody who has some assets or some value or an entity, a company, and that lease is personally guaranteed. So, for example, if Corey was sitting with a half a million dollars in a bank, which I know he is, he's a wealthy guy. <laughs> yeah. If you said to me, John, I want to rent this space for you for five years for 5000 a month, and I knew you were worth a half a million dollars, I'd have you personally sign the lease. So you're guaranteeing me the lease personally. So now if you don't perform in a lease, I can sue you, Corey, and get out your money in your personal bank account. Oh. So the way to do it is to write the right kind of lease that has the right kind of personal guarantees to a person of some worth so that the guarantee means something. And that lease will be recognized by the bank. So it's the type of lease that you have and the type of guarantees on that lease that's really, really important. All right, last one. Hey, John. My name is Brent, and I'm calling from Hannibal, Missouri. And my question for you, sir, is if I can be part of a recon team the next time you're in Missouri. Or perhaps a couple times a year, viewers could enter their name via your website for a chance to be part of a recon team. Thanks, John. And yes, since it was my idea, I could be part of the first viewer recon team. <laughs> Thank you, sir. Love the show. You know, it's funny. Before he dropped in that last bit, I was about to say, this is great. Let's do a contest. And I wouldn't have thought of letting him go first because it was his idea. But you know what? He's right. So you know what I'm going to do? Let's develop and let's announce it next week, Corey. Let's develop a little promotion that you can be on a bar rescue recon team. 
and we can do it one of a couple of different ways, Corey. We can either invite somebody to do recon. We can invite somebody to be in a stress test. Or we can invite somebody to come to a reveal. Uh, uh, but let's take a look at that. Let's develop a little contest. Let's get that contest going in the next couple of weeks. And let's make sure that, that he is our first winner. What was his name? Brent. Brent, so let's make sure that you're the first winner, buddy, and that you'll get to do the first one. So here's my promise. We will work out this promotion, right, Corey? Yes, we will. You think we can announce it next week, or do you think we need two weeks? Oh, no, I think we could get this up and going. Great. We will announce this next week, and it'll be a great promotion, and somebody, or a couple, or a few of you, maybe. Let's do it for a few of us. Maybe we can do three or four episodes so we can have a bunch of winners. What do you say? Yeah, people love it. All right, coming soon. The Bar Rescue being an episode contest. That was a great call. It's fun getting comments like that. You know, guys, we, we don't have all the ideas here, so call. Give me those ideas and give me some thin ice. I love the In the Dark segment, but I want you guys to embarrass me more. Come on, stick it to me. Give me stuff that I can't answer. Tell me what you don't like. Challenge me. Tell me a Bar Rescue you didn't like. Challenge me. I want this segment to be one of the, the, the most engaging that we can do. And I'm going to let everybody in on, on a new secret. I'm working on my new book. I'm pretty excited about it, Corey. I have a new name. I'm not going to tell you much what it is, but the name of the book is The Absence of Conflict. Oh. And it's an interesting concept. What would the world be without conflict? And I don't mean like war. I mean you and I disagreeing on, on where to go for lunch. Or, where would the world be without conflict? And, you know, it's an interesting premise, and it's the new book that I'm writing, is would the world be a better place without any conflict, or would it be a worse place? So, Corey, if I told you that, that uh, um, your mother was the devil. Oh, come on, John. And, 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 in, and because you were so scared of conflict, which you're not, you allowed me to get away with saying that. Would that be a good thing? No, of course not. Because you'd be throwing away your values. Yeah. Because you're scared to, 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 of conflict to fight for your values. So that's just a silly example. Yeah. But my point is that the world without conflict would be a terrible place. All of our values would disappear. None of us would stick up for anything that meant anything to us. We wouldn't fight for what's important. So conflict has a very, very important part in our society. And sure, I do it on Bar Rescue. Of course, I conflict with people because I have no time for them to come on board at their own pace. But the whole premise of my new book, and it's fascinating as I'm writing it through and thinking about it, is what a terrible place the world would be without conflict. So if conflict is critical to our growth as a society then, Corey, you and I need to know how to have conflict with each other without insulting each other, don't we? Yeah. We need to know how to have positive conflict, right? Yeah, that makes sense. Meaningful con conflict. So the premise of conflict isn't bad. It's just nasty conflict, disrespectful conflict that's bad, right? You could say, John, I'm a Democrat, or John, I'm a Republican, or I'm a... And you could say anything that you want to say to me and disagree with me if you do it in a respectful way. So here's my point. When we say that conflict is bad, I think we're wrong. I think conflict is a powerful part of our society. And I think all of us have to have the courage to stand up for what we believe, even when it causes conflict. Because when we choose not to have conflict, more often than not, we throw away our own values. 
and that's pretty heavy. So there's an inside look at the book that I'm working on now, and the working name is The Absence of Conflict. It's going to take a while before we get it done and get it out in the market. But I get a take, Corey. I'm pretty excited about it. And when I come back, I'll be with Brent. Stand by. Don't shut down this podcast yet. No Excuses with John Taffer continues next. You know, it's funny, Corey, when you run a business day-to-day, you know, talking to people is easy. You know, you and I talking together is easy. You know, working on things is easy. You know, payroll and accounting is what's really, really tough in a business. Because the fact of the matter is a lot of people don't put the time into it, and then it bites them in the butt when the numbers don't work. And running a business doesn't have to be difficult. With Square Payroll Services, you can easily pay your W-2 employees and 1099 contractors online in just a few clicks. You can file your taxes, offer benefits like the 401k, and more. Square Payroll is integrated with Square POS, so time cards and tips are automatically imported into payroll. And they offer fair and flexible pricing that scales with your business. Just $29 per month plus $5 per employee per month. I'm talking about simple pricing. No hidden fees and no long-term contracts. Square Payroll is a win for any business. Right now, my listeners can receive three free months of Square Payroll by visiting square.com slash go slash taffer. That's square.com slash go slash taffer to receive three months of Square Payroll. Taffer's back. This is No Excuses with John Taffer. About 10 years ago, Somebody said to me, you should be on television. So I wrote up this thing called On the Rocks, three pages and a piece of paper. And I thought to myself, all right, I'm going to go on TV. And I go to Hollywood. I don't know freaking anybody in Hollywood at all. And I send this little video, this three-minute sizzle reel that I made called On the Rocks. You remember, Brant? And, I do. And I brought it to a company called Three Ball Productions. And it was a gentleman by the name of Brant. Pinvidic, who was the president at the time, I believe, and creative developer of Three Ball. At the time, I think it was just Three Ball uh, Entertainment, I guess. Yep. So a guy sets up this meeting at the network, and he's got a lot of high energy, and, and I don't know who this guy is. All I know is he's got a bounce in his step, and this guy's got some freaking energy, and next thing I know, they sign me, and a couple of weeks later, I'm with this guy, I don't know, Brant, and we're sitting in the conference room at Spike Network, Viacom. I'm in Hollywood. I'm in a network office building. What the hell am I doing here? And I'm sitting next to this guy, Brant, and I watch this guy masterfully do a pitch and control the room. And I thought I was pretty good at this until I met Brandt. Well, I had to invite you on my podcast, buddy. Uh, oh, listen, John, I love it. Happy to be here. And, and uh, you know, everybody in life pitches something sometime. Even when you ask a girl to marry you, it's sort of a pitch, right, Brent? Absolutely. You're selling something at all times. Try to convey your information. So Brandt is, is a good friend of mine, Was a, is a Canadian-American, uh, de- produced a whole bunch of films, was involved in the selling and initiation of Bar Rescue, Extreme Weight Loss. Uh, why I'm Not uh, with Brandt is a writer on Forbes. And you're a fascinating story, buddy. You grew up in oh, Canada. I did. Thought you wanted to go into the television business, Correct. Yes. So you yes. knew Seems this. Like a good idea at the time. You knew this at a young age. So you loved TV when you were young. Yeah, I love the creative process, and I like the idea of sort of creating things and see it come to life. So yep. I always thought that's where I was going to end up. So your dad, who of course you admired, looked at you and Absolutely. said, "Give this up. Get a straight job. You're nuts." <laughs> Absolutely, one hundred percent. 
Okay, pick up the story from there. So you're a young man. You're in Canada. Your father's telling you you're crazy. You're trying to pitch this idea. Yeah. You're married, correct? I'm married. I got a two-year-old child. We live in my parents' basement at the time. So you, so, got, you got nothing pretty much but this dream. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, I tried to make it in Canada and the TV show, but nobody wanted it because Canadian TV doesn't work the way you think American TV does or the way TV come up with a good idea. Someone buys it. It's not the way Canada works. It would have been good if I would have researched that before I went and spent all my money on making a TV show. Maybe a good idea to do some research. But at that point, and I was living in my parents' basement, so when my dad says, hey, it's time to get a real job, at the time he had some leverage to be able to say that because I lived in his basement. Um, But I made that one last-ditch effort where I went down to the U.S. I got one meeting with a sort of producer that I begged to take a meeting. I didn't have money on my credit card to stay in the hotel for all seven days between the flights because those were the cheap flights. And, uh, you know, Hollywood has a way of somehow finding a little bit of luck your way. And I ended up selling the show to NBC and I ended up with a lot of different offers to come and work in television. And I think that at the time, reality TV was a little bit new and people were getting all very hyped up. And I don't think they understood how little experience I had that I had just literally shown up the day before because I had sold a pilot. Um, You know, six months later, I sold a pilot. and We were in Vegas doing the testing with the focus group and the president of the network looked at me when the guy asked, do you want to do the slide or the dial test? And he looked at me and said, I don't know, Brant, you've done this more than I have. What do you want to do? <laughs> so you and faked it I pretty well. Said, yeah. I just said, I like the slide works better for me, but it's easy, you know? And so I just sort of kept that attitude and just like hoping no one was going to find out that I shouldn't have been there. And then eventually after a few years, you realize, Oh, wait a second. Like, Maybe I know stuff now and, and I got, you know, I got good at what I was doing, but a lot of it came from desperation to fit in and make sure that people didn't realize that I was just a Canadian who didn't have experience. You have a quote that's interesting to me. Self-doubt is self-defeating. Situational doubt is self-preserving. What do you mean? Well, listen, honestly, John, I got a lot of that from you and watching you do what you do in Bar Rescue because you're one of those guys that cuts through the crap and gets to the, those owners and those bar managers and tells them exactly what's really happening. And the delusion that they have, I see in business and entrepreneurs across the board, doesn't matter if it's a gigantic biotech company in a scientific area you've never heard of, or if it's a big retail shop, like it doesn't matter. The delusional sort of sense of what they're going to achieve and what's possible and that they don't really see what's really happening is universal. So what I find a lot of times is now that there's so much um, self-help and the preaching of the idea of don't take no for an answer and you can do it and push past the doubters and you see those actresses and actresses on them with their Academy Award saying like, don't let anybody tell you no. And what I was saying is like, hey, sometimes no isn't the wrong answer. Like, And you know as well as I do um, in the restaurant and nightclub industry and bar industry, like sometimes – it doesn't work because of other factors. And we've all had those guys that have taken an idea for their bar in a wrong location with the wrong setup and run it till they have nothing left. They spent every dollar, they've gotten divorced, they've lost their kids, their lives. And because they pushed past the no, you know, 15 times, the life preserver was there, but because they had this, you know, and so when I say self-doubt is that's the thing we all have, we're not good enough you know, it's never going to work. Like we all have that. That's that. That's your yep. brain telling yep. you that. But situational doubt is that gut feeling where it's like it doesn't always work just because you try harder. Like sometimes you know right away this isn't the way it's supposed to be. But when you get confused, whether it's 
just that self-doubt that you should push past or the situational doubt that you should listen to, that's where I find people get a little bit confused. So I work hard to try to help people see those two things. No, that's powerful. And you've worked with a lot of great executives. And, and look, you've, you've really uh, become a pretty powerful influencer. You know, what's interesting is in my book, when, when I talked about no excuses, I used the excuse of circumstance. Right, which is just a different word for situational, right? But, yeah. And how people use circumstance as an excuse. So they feed their own egos by saying, I'm actually really good at this. It's the circumstance that's making me fail. So, that's so got it. Now I deflect accountability. It's not my fault. It's all the circumstances' fault. So I don't have to change yeah. a freaking thing. So yeah. really, we're saying it using different types of terminology, in essence. Yeah. Yeah. So, and you've seen it like firsthand where they just don't. Like they'll they'll blame the circumstance, but they won't listen to the circumstance. Right. Where it's like, hey, your manager is terrible, or your the way your kitchen is operating is awful, or the decor is off. Like those situations are there, staring them in the face, and they just don't understand that sometimes you can't just overcome it with a good attitude. And even the best sort of most positive person in the world. Sometimes you got to listen to the real factors. And like I said, I, I watching you do that so effectively, I realize like how powerful that is. And people get, they just get lost. You know, it's interesting. When I, when I think about your profession, you're on a front end of things. You're the guy who puts the premise together, puts the presentation together, creates the format, creates the desire, right? Builds the presentation, goes in, pitches it, creates the expectation, Yep. Sometimes you hand off the production or uh, uh, implementation to somebody else. Sometimes you don't. When you find that you're the guy creating the expectation but not delivering the end result, how much does that burn you? For example, when, when you do that pitch and you say, wow, this is a great buyer. This is the greatest potential in the world. Do you see that partner, that person you're working with, drop the ball at that point often? Um, this is funny because I would say yes in my, in my younger days, I would have said yes. In my little bit more wisdom, I say it's probably 50, 50, whereas they actually make better than I would have done if I was involved. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they drop the ball. Like it's really hard to get it right all the time. And I've learned over the years that like I'm a good producer, but I might not be the best in all the situations. And sometimes the best comes out of things you don't get involved in. And here's a great story as I was running the TLC network when John and Kate plus eight was about to launch. And and I had gone through a list trying to find a show for Tuesday night. And my team was asking me, pick a show, pick a show. We have these specials and these from other networks, smaller networks. We can use one. And I was just busy. I never watched the tape. And finally, they pressed me and I just said, which one did best in the rating on the special? This John and K plus eight one. Fine. Let's put that on the air. I never watched the show. Mm-hmm. It then, you know, then when I finally watch it, you know, it's not produced at the level I would have thought in my own brain of how it would should be done. And there was things that were really clearly not what I would have called professional TV at the time. So I was panicked that, oh, my God, you know, my bosses are going to see the show and be like, what did you do? And then the show rates to be the highest rated show in the history of the TLC network. Mm-hmm. And had I got involved in the show. I would have ruined it, and I would have made it not what it was. Right. It, it, it's roughness is what made it good, I'm guessing, in essence. Yes. Yeah. And so it's like I realized, like, wow. And, and the joke I always say is, like, I was worried I was going to get fired if they saw the show, and I got fired anyway, so what was the difference? But yeah. the, the point was is that, like, my instinct to be creatively in control of everything 
wouldn't have worked in that particular situation. And I think Bar Rescue is a good example either. Like you and I didn't have a lot of interaction on set Mm -hmm. because that wasn't my purview. That wasn't what I was doing. And I don't know that that Bar Rescue would have done what it did. And I don't know that you would have been able to do what you did if I was there as well. Maybe it would have been better, but there's a chance now that I've learned in wisdom that it could have been worse because you never know, you know? So it is tough, but you learn to like, it takes a village for success, and sometimes it's better to have the villagers do it. You have another quote that's interesting to me that you say, just because everyone is telling you no, it doesn't mean that they're all wrong. Right. And, and uh, boy, do I agree with that powerful premise. And, and, you know, to me, the naysayers just should move out of the way so that guys like you and I can get it done. <laughs> that's right. Yes, exactly. So, so I sort of believe that. You know what's interesting? When, when I watch you pitch and sell, you've become the master of it. And I'm cool when I pitch something or sell something to somebody, which I do often. I'm fine with a yes, obviously. I'm fine with a no. I hate the maybe. Maybe is the biggest enemy we have in life. Don't you agree? Because what do I do with the freaking maybe? I can't take the file off my desk, but I can't open it either. So I'm stuck in this place of of, uh, uh, no direction. So... I'll push people to say no yes. <laughs> rather than say maybe at least no. Okay, get the file off my desk. I move on to the next one. I can deal with the no every time. In the television business, you pitch ideas, not even products yet. Often yep, they're air. not visualized. Often you're describing it to me, and I'm picturing in my mind something very different than what you're saying because it's all up to our own imaginations. And How do you develop a pitch so well? for an idea that you can't yet hold in your hand. It's not yet tangible. How do you pitch a concept as well as you do, Brent? Well, I think the biggest thing, and I, and I think that's what's helped me as I've been guiding others in the pitch and presentation process, is that in, when you pitch an idea, you are really just conveying the information. There's not a lot of facts or figures, logic, reason, all of those things to tie things up. It's like, I got to get the concept to you first and foremost. If you can understand that I want to take one eligible man and surround him by 16 beautiful women, and at the end, there's going to be a proposal with one of them. Like, if I can get you to understand the basic concept first, then all of the elements about that pitch will have more value. It's called sort of the context I try to build. And when you look at it, I've done quite a bit of studying now, but when you look at the way we process our decisions, we conceptualize the decision first, we contextualize how it's going to work for us, and then we actualize on how we make it real. And when you pitch an idea, I'd been trained for, you know, over the decades to do it in that that succession naturally. It's like, I got to get you to understand the concept first, then I can I get you to understand why it works and what makes it cool or different. And then we can talk about how the show actually works and you can find a way. And, and and I think what a lot of people and a lot of my clients, when I work with them, they, they get confused because their information is so valuable and they know it so well and they understand everything. And I, I got to make them understand, like, until your audience understands the concept, those other elements aren't valuable to them. Without the context, you can't build that. You know, it's interesting. When I pitch creative ideas, I try to say as little as possible. Because the more creative ideas I give you, the more you have to disagree with me about it. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, if I tell you that this, this show is going to be produced in Utopia, I'm not going to describe Utopia. 
I'm going to let you come up with your own image of utopia. Exactly. Because that's yeah. going to be perfect for you. My image yeah. of utopia might not be perfect for you. So yeah. do you find, are you conscious about that too when you pitch people that you hold back ideas and just give them what it takes to cause their reaction but never more? Absolutely Is, because, I mean, it's, 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 the, it's the core of my book. It's like it's three minutes how do you say less and get more? Right. And the real, the truth is, is that like the more you say, the more likely you are to step on a landmine that sends them in a tangent you don't want to. And everybody, you're, everybody listening has done that, where they went to explain or pitch something to someone or try to convince someone to do something on the weekend or whatever it is. And the next thing you know, the conversation goes in a completely different mm-hmm. direction. And how do they and reel it like, back? You know, yep. yeah. And you're and you're messed up the entire time. And so, the core is that because you're probably saying it too much too often trying to say it loudly, trying to say it perfectly, repeating yourself. There's, there's all these things we do. The more desperate we are to make others understand our vision, the more likely you are to get promotional. And then you end up repeating it and continuing sort of this cycle. And that's the problem is that confidence in your information is the most powerful way to pitch. So when, when, uh, um, you and I were talking a few weeks ago, you told me about your new book. Yeah. And this isn't a sales pitch because it's not available yet. You just send it to the publisher, correct? Yeah. So, well, yeah, it comes out October 29th. Great. So October 29th. I was really intrigued. So I asked you to send me a copy, which you did. Yeah. And then I wrote you a little blurb in, oh, in a flap, a little endorsement blurb because I think it's a great book. I want you to tell everybody a little about it and, and about your three steps. Talk about the process because it was really intriguing to me. And this applies to everyone. If you're a parent – and you're trying to convince your child to do your homework, this applies. If you're trying to sell a widget, this applies. If you're trying to explain to your mother as a child why you didn't do your homework tonight, this applies. Yes. This applies to every single aspect in life because we succeed in life when people around us concur with what we're doing. And in essence, when you present things in a way that you do, whether it's to your child, to your wife, to a producer, to a buyer, to a seller, the principles really don't change, Brand, do they? No, and and it really is – if you take a step back, the first thing you've got to understand is when you're pitching, presenting, selling, convincing, is that your only goal is to convey the information. If your audience, whoever that is, understood your information the same way you understood it, they would have to agree and concur with you. So that's really the goal. And so what the book is called The Three-Minute Rule mm-hmm. and how to get say less and get more out of every pitch and presentation. And the three-minute rule states that you have to convey everything of value about your business, product, or service clearly and concisely in three minutes or less. And it's because the science of how we process our decisions you have about a three-minute window where people start to make that yes or no. If you're lucky, you can get them that long. Wow. So, so Boy, do I agree with you. It's funny. I call it, in, in a hospitality business, I call it the three-step. <laughs> because yeah. three steps in to a business, you assess the environment, the smell, the look, the pace, the energy. You're already either you know made your choice as to whether this is going to work for you or not. So the premise is the same. This is fascinating to me. So I know that in a restaurant business that the average person looks at the average menu 52 seconds. That's it. So if I try to make a menu that's going to take you two minutes to read, the likelihood of me getting you to go past 52 seconds isn't greater. So you're not – you and I are studies or students of human behavior. Yes. You and I are students of the processes of the mind, 
right? We, we really share that in common. 100%. So what you've been able to do, and this is deep, buddy, what you've been able to do is you've been able to pinpoint this process of what it would take for me to get comfortable with something, in essence, yep. understanding the format, understanding how it works, understanding what it means to me, in essence, right? Yep. Uh, yes. Uh, 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 by simplifying this into those three things, if I just apply a couple of sentences to each, convey my information effectively, if I can do this in 90 seconds rather than three minutes, I'm a winner, aren't I? Absolutely. And it really has become – and three minutes isn't just a guideline of how to condense things. It's it's how you get that process started with someone because you need to fig- you need to understand which pieces of information are going to be laid out in which order – to extend their attention span. Because the problem right now is people think that, that we all have a shorter attention span. Microsoft did an incredible study that shows the human attention span is down to 8.2 seconds. And a goldfish is at nine. Wow. So the general consensus is that people are kind of like mindless zombies connected to their phone and they don't pay attention. And it's actually not true. It's the total opposite. People focus now more intensely and more deliberately than ever before. And if you don't give them valuable information quick enough, they will tune you out yeah. in an 8.2 second instant. I completely and agree. And so what I'm trying to get people to do and what the three minute rule helps you do is to capture their attention and hold it long enough with valuable information so you can get to, if you're lucky, all three minutes of that decision-making process. And wherever they stop along that process to make their decision, if you've stacked your information correctly, you've got them with the most valuable pieces so they make their decision hence and through the you, three steps hence through those hence three steps step, concisely yeah. Cons- and, and, and logically and, and deliberately yeah i'm with you and i don't know if you've if you've heard of my latest when i'm on stage doing a keynote or whatever but i use the john taffer example i was like if you were if you were at a bar and you were trying to convince the manager who's going to manage tonight and you had a guy who never had managed a bar ever and you were trying to convince the owner to let him manage it for the weekend, you can imagine how much you'd have to explain. If you had John Taffer that was going to manage your bar for the night, what would you have to say? You'd basically just, you'd be so confident and you'd say so little and you would just lay out the information. It's John Taffer, he's coming here, he's going to manage your bar. You'd, you'd, be, right. you'd feel it and that would convey in your information. So the more powerful you feel your information when you lay it out right, the more confidence you have, the more it affects the pitch and the, and the better you are at saying only what's needed to be said, not everything you want to say. And that's a big distinction. Boy, television has taught me the whole concept of brevity really well. You know, yeah. in, in television, if I can have a sentence with eight words rather than 20 words, I win every time. Absolutely. Right. In television, every sentence I say has to make you want to hear the next sentence or I blew it. Right. It's got Absolutely. To, it's got to work in that type of sequencing. When I sell, I use this premise called the big fat claim. And the premise of the big fat claim is to look at you and say, you know, you know what, Brent? I have the best ribs you've ever tasted in your life. I have the best television show. If I make a big fat claim at the beginning of a conversation, you're going to sit up in your seat. You're going to cross your arms and you're going to say, oh, yeah, let me say it. So what I do typically in sales presentations is I try to create some type of a big fat claim that causes somebody to be curious about it 
Right. Now, I got to deliver on that big fat claim. I can't say it's good and then it sucks, obviously. That's right. But 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 it's interesting. So when I met with you and and watched you work, you actually I don't know if you use that term big fat claim as as I do, but you were very similar in that way. When you talked about the format, you established this desire to learn more. Yes. When you talked about how it works, that picked up on the same desire. And we all need to understand this when we pitch or sell anything. So if I'm explaining what it is, hmm, curious. The next step in your mind is, and boy, am I with you, Brent. The next step in my mind is, huh, how does it work? <laughs> and, then the next, right. and then the next thing in my mind is, huh, what the hell does that mean to me? Can I use this? Will this work? Will this be successful? It's so freaking simple. So what you've done is you've taken something that people complicate. I look at sales training programs and stuff all the time. They have 20 steps, six steps, nine steps, doing this, doing that, doing that. I mean, they complicate it to the point that it's just overwhelmingly ridiculous. Yes. You have taken the opposite approach. You've really simplified this in a way that makes it easier to pitch but much easier to be the, the prospect of the pitch. Yeah, and it, it's been really, it's been amazing how well it's been received just because there's a there's a hunger out there for people to find this. Yeah. And I think it's because we're all feeling the same thing, right? Short attention spans, really hard to crack. Yeah. Uh, a lot of skepticism in the marketplace. So anytime you make a claim, and I'll, I'm going to give you more credit than you think you deserve. But I'm telling you, I've watched you do what you do. And when you say big flat claim, you're very precise. You are passionate about facts, not opinions. When you start your pitch and you talk about your big fat claim, you are talking about a fact, not your opinion. So your audience doesn't go, oh, what a bullshitter or what a what a jerk or that's just not possible, right? right. When you talk about something great, you talk about it in a factual basis so it's like now I can show you how it works as opposed to making it about you and your strange opinion. Like you're really good at that. And with the skepticism that's out there in the marketplace, anybody making an opinion-based claim, the, the audience is instantly like, oh, okay, whatever. Right. And then the other sort of big problem right now in the marketplace is the access to information. Everybody has information at the tip of their fingertips at any moment. So – it's really tempting to tell the audience things that they already know. And you really don't need to do that. People are so savvy and they understand so clearly. You can cut all that out and just get to the heart of your information. Your audience will appreciate it. You'll feel cleaner and better. And it just translates better. It sure does. It also keeps you away from babbling, blah, 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 which, which just obviously you lose attention instantly. Okay, you ready? I'm giving you a scenario here, buddy. Do it. You're back in your father's basement. Yeah. All these years ago. What do you know today that you really wish you knew then? That's tough. Um, because I often say when I'm when I'm you know if I'm doing a seminar or I'm teaching or I'm speaking to kids I say like you can't follow my path because you know it's not a treasure map right it's a disaster recon of somehow I ended up here. Right. Most but, people would not have ended up where you did, you're saying. Right. Yep. Ab absolutely. And you couldn't follow that path. And yep. you can't follow somebody else's path to success. It doesn't work that way. Because the, the path to success is littered with failure and problems and doubt and issues and hardships. And you, you just can't map that out without those things. But if I could go back and, tell, and talk to myself and tell my dad, it's like, I would say you will find where you belong at some point. It's not you, it's, the, it's 
it's where you are. You're not in the right situation. And that was hard for me to, to hold on to that belief. And I got very lucky that I had a few people sort of give me the, 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 you know, the shot in the ass that I needed to just hold on a little bit longer. Cause it was really close. It was very close to not happening, but it, I would have told myself that like, you've just got to be in the right situation. You will find your people. Um, and then the other little one, a little more tangible is you don't always have to be the smartest one in the room. Yeah. I wish I would have learned that a lot earlier. Yeah. You Cause know. that would, that, that, that would have helped me just relationship wise and, and advance through things a little bit cleaner and faster. There was a lot of time early in my career where I just had to show people how smart and good I was. Mm-hmm. And you know, that doesn't always, you know, ingratiate you to everybody. Yeah. So that would have been a nice one to, to learn early. Yeah, my grandfather used to say, be the smartest person in the room, and once you are, then change the other people in the room. Right. <laughs> in yeah. essence, upgrade yourself along the way. Yeah. <clears throat> you said something before that, that was uh, um, interesting to me when, when you were talking about you know, what you would have done for yourself, and, and uh, everybody has their own path. You find your place. The saddest thing to me in life is when you see people who gave up and stopped looking. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes I see it on Bar Rescue, Brant. I know you've seen it. These people who are at, at a medium or lower position in a company or a job, and they stay in that position for 20 years. It's like the bartender who has all the potential in the world. She could own the place. She could run it. She could this. But she chooses to be there in a bar that she's losing money and can't pay the rent, and she's been in that place for 20 years. And I look at the employees that don't make a living in bar rescue and the people that you and I know, buddy, in our lives. Absolutely. We have a lot of friends that are this way. They that was me. They struggle, but they don't have the courage to get up and go to the next step of the journey and find where they belong. Yeah. So do you agree with this? We all can find a place where we belong. A hundred percent. Because the, the traits that you have that are valuable – you need to find people who value them. You need to be in a place that people value those skills and abilities. And a lot of times we stick in our zip code and our comfort zone physically and emotionally. And you might not be surrounded with people or situations or locations that value those skills because everybody has something that makes them unique, that brings out the passion in them, that will make them the best at who they are. And I think first and foremost, you want to find that situation where you can excel in the areas that you are the best at, and then everything else kind of finds its way once you get there. You know, but that's a big step. It is a big step. There's two choices in life. You know, we can be making a living, living in a modest place, going through our existence and saying, I accept this. It's not my place per se. I'm not as happy or as comfortable or as joyful as I could be. I accept this. And I compromise on my life. And then there's the other guy, candidly like you, who says, nah, where I am isn't good enough. I got to find the next place. I got to take the next step into the journey. The most powerful thing I think about our talk today, and I never looked at it this way before, uh, Brandt, is that everybody does have a place. Every listener has a place. Every listener can find an environment where they're respected, they're loved, they're looked up to. Everyone can find a skill that they're good at that they can master. Every one of us can find a place. But you're not going to find a place if you stay where you are unsatisfied. 
Absolutely. The place is not coming to you. Exactly it's right. Not, it's not a boat that floats by you. You know what no, I mean? It it's not, it doesn't work like that. You got to get out and experience. And I'll, and I'll tell you, like, over the last couple of years, as I've moved from the sort of day-to-day of television production and being executive into more of the business and the consulting and speaking and now the book, I've had a lot of people in my industry, like my peers, asking me about, you know, they, you know, what would they do outside of TV and how could they find that? And I have to explain to them. And these are, as you know, high-level entertainment executives that people would be looking up at this great job and this great life and they're feeling the same thing you are that they only have one set of skills that's only good in this particular industry and in this particular job and outside of that who would want to take them seriously and i have to i have to walk them through the idea that the skills and the personality and the abilities that you developed over the years are really valuable in the marketplace you got to do a little work to find out what marketplace that is but they're there Find your place and keep looking until you find it. And when you find it, you'll freaking know it, won't you, buddy? Absolutely. You you feel it and you know it. And suddenly you wake up in the morning with a whole new level of inspiration because, you know, you really did find your place. I found mine. You know, I went to college college for political science, buddy. Well, you saw me. I was never in this business. Slip into something. I found a place that I'm really comfortable with. I want to tell a quick story. Many years ago, in 1986, I started my own consulting company. And when I started my own consulting company, I was a corporate hotel executive at the time. And I thought, Brent, that I'd be able to help small independent businesses act like the big guys. But when I went and started pitching these small business owners, these entrepreneurs, they all had a know-it-all attitude. They didn't need a consultant. They didn't need any outside advice. They freaking knew it all. And then I started pitching Fortune 500 companies, the Marriott's of the world, and the Intercontinental Hotels of the world. And I realized corporate people have a much greater knowledge or desire for outside input. So the independent guys wouldn't hire me because of their ego, but the corporate guys would hire me in a minute. And I realized as people got more elevated in life, like you, they were more open to opinions when they were in their own little world that they weren't. And as an end result, I wound up consulting to all these Fortune 100 and Fortune 50 companies, all because I had this great lesson. I'd walk into huge companies. Tell a quick story. I'm going to get myself in trouble, but I'm going to tell the story. Years ago, I licensed TV Land from the network after Rainforest Cafe, and I was going to create TV Land, a restaurant. And I had one of the biggest licensing agreements in the history of Hollywood. I had a license with Viacom and CBS for 88 television shows and a license from MTV Networks to use the TV Land brand, and I was going to have all these 88 television shows within the TV Land restaurant. So, so the chair from Frasier was there, and Get Smart's coming up and down the phone booth, and all this kind of stuff's going on. And uh, um, when I created this concept, and, and, and I went to Paramount to pitch it to Paramount, and I walked in expecting this unbelievably button-down, impressive, tight corporate operation with executives who were just poised and knew what they were doing. And these guys were going to be the greatest decision-makers I ever met, Brent. I'm going to Paramount, for Christ's sakes. I drive through the big white gates. I get my drive-on pass. I go into the studios. I meet with these guys. And this is years ago, so I can say this. I'm not going to get anybody in trouble. And I got involved and worked with their consumer licensing department and their product these guys were a disorganized freaking mess. <laughs> and okay. I, learned, I learned at a young age that no big corporation has anything on us. 
They're no. every bit as disorganized, as confused, and as self-doubting as anyone else is. My point is this. At a young age, I learned never to be intimidated by the gates of Paramount or the gates of anything. I mean, you are speaking my language, John. Unbelievable. I had this exact same experience with one of my first consulting clients in, in Miami, and it was this huge biotech company in, this, in, the, in an industry and in, in research and development of anti-rejection drugs and terrifying. The guy who's at the head of it has a wing of a hospital named after him. Hmm. And I was like, why am I going to do this? They're going to figure out that I'm just a TV producer. And within 30 minutes, I realized going like, oh, okay, so you guys don't have your shit together. <laughs> like you, you guys have a really good thing in this scientific thing and everything else a mess. And it's almost universal. Everywhere I've gone, and I've been lately with some pretty big organizations that still have shocked me. It was like, you guys don't have this division sewed up yet. Like, you're the biggest in the players, but they get so inside their own head at what they do well, and they just, they, they're pedal to the metal, and everything else is a mess. Everybody has the same issues. Yeah, Nobody's got their shit together. That's right. We all wear this, we all put on underwear and socks and oh, shoes. Absolutely. Yeah. So, 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 you know, to me, Understanding that and understanding, and, and, and this is a great note to end it on, buddy. Nobody has shit on us with the exception of two things. They might have a little more experience and they might be in a better place. I can get that experience and I can get to that place, which means absolutely. they don't have shit on us, do they? Nope. Absolutely. That is exactly, that's as clean and clear as you can make it. Yeah. Boy, this was a great talk, buddy. I hope we inspired some people. You know what, guys? Uh, uh, when Brandt's book comes out at the end of October, make sure you look into it. Tell everybody the title. Tell everybody your website, where they can find you. Yeah, so it's The Three Minute Rule is the name of the book. You can see that at the3minuterule.com or at my website, brandpinvidic.com. Excellent. And Pivitic is P-I-N-V-I-D-I-C. Buddy, it was great to see you. You too, Big John. You know, to think that that, that you and I – started Bar Rescue together. You started my TV career with me all these oh, years dude. ago. Just in closing. I, I say it all the time. I is say, it like, anybody could have sold that show. John in the room, anybody could have done that. Because, and I'll say this just quickly, but the one thing about you that was a game changer is when we're pitching a show about, you know, transforming a bar, just the concept alone wasn't, the, not the breaking a mold. And you're a big, loud personality that had all that stuff. That's great. That works. But in the room, when you got passionate and detailed about the science of how nightclub and bars work, it was a complete game changer. And that was the birth of the show right there in the room, right out of your mouth, because they realized, everybody realized, like, oh, that's what this guy does. It's the science behind it. And that's what made that show work as a concept. And then that's you being you made you a star from that. That was really your push, and the passion about the science of it was a game changer. Uh, thank you, buddy. Did you ever think it would last so long? I mean, you know, there's a lot of time. I, I, I knew it was going to stay popular, but listen, when you, when you have meteoric success like that and egos and everybody there, I always was wondering, like, with the networks and, and production companies and people, and it's like you never know if it's going to stick together and gel. It's like a band. Yeah. You want it to stay together so badly, and you never know if it's going to break up. And to have it stay together and continue to work has been a blessing. So yeah, Awesome, buddy. Well, thank you for helping getting me there. Everybody, check out Brant's website. I'm excited about the book. I had a chance to read it. 
because obviously I wouldn't put an endorsement on a book I didn't no. read. I had a chance to read it, and I can tell all of you you're going to want to read it too. Thanks, buddy. You were the best, John. Thanks, man. We'll be right back. That was it. Awesome, buddy. You're a good man, John. I really appreciate it. Thank you. So, so uh, obviously, we'll post the podcast if you want. We'll also send you a copy of the file uh, if you okay. want to repost it when the book comes out or something. I'm happy oh to do God. it. For and when sure. uh, when the book comes out, I'm happy to support you, buddy. So let me know that week uh, I will, uh, so sure. I can plug it for you and stuff. That's super sweet. I appreciate that a lot. And then I was saying I want to write it. I'm going to do a Forbes article because I have a portal now in Forbes. Yeah, great. So I, I write all the time. So I'd love to write an article about you and the business and the transition between – you know, on screen and now the business itself and using brands and stuff like that. I'd love to, you know, come up with a cool way to sort of pump up what you're doing and stuff like that. Cause it's pretty cool. 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 I love that. Let's and then, it. um, I have a, I have a pretty good podcast myself, so I'd love to interview you and, and flip the table a little bit. Sure. Um, it's neat. It's with a big investment bank that's, that's sponsoring it. And it's all about ideas, people and opportunities. It's called IPO. And so I take people with big ideas oh, I love it. Good and name. talk about the people behind them and then the opportunities that those ideas have created, trying to celebrate a little bit of the entrepreneurial spirit and, and what it's meant to this country and to people and stuff. And I love the idea of taking what you've been able to do and like, I don't want, I'm not just a TV host, look at, you know, and building the, the sort of brand that you've created and what it's meant to so many people and the people you employ and the, that kind of stuff. I'd love to sort of do that and I'll interview awesome. you for that one. People will love that. We'll do it. Take care. You know, Brant, this interview sent the exact message that I was hoping you would send to people. You know, I was never on TV. You came up with a way to pitch it. We pitched it together. Son of a gun. Ten years later, I'm on TV. It's the pitch that drives our lives. Whether you're pitching yourself in a job interview, whether you're pitching yourself to get the next contract for your company, whether you're pitching your wife to let you buy the next new car you want to buy, no matter what it is, he who pitches better can get more out of life. Pitching isn't only understanding the prospects of selling. Pitching is understanding how to read other people, how to say what's important and not say what isn't important. And there's a lot to be learned from Brand's story and Brand's success. So I hope next time you go to pitch anything, whether it's dinner, a car, your next big deal, your next big job, that you really think about what Brand said today. Because we should only say what people want to hear in those situations. We shouldn't be saying what we want to hear. And that's the power of a great pitch. Want to talk to John? Email him now at podcast at johntaffer.com. Well, here we go, buddy. That was episode 59 of my No Excuses podcast. Thank you all for listening. Make sure you check out TVT University at grantcardone.com slash Taffer. Don't miss Bar Rescue next week. It's a hell of an episode, by the way, next Sunday. You definitely don't want to miss this one. And I'll talk to you all next week. Take care.